Welcome to the Inclusive Mental Health Podcast, Crossroads in Therapy by Belong. In this podcast, we will put therapy under a magnifying glass and enkindle the spirit of intersectional mental health. In each episode, we talk to experts with adequate professional and personal experiences in tackling mental health challenges faced by marginalized communities. The title for today's episode is Visibilizing Race in the Therapy Room. Even though racial prejudices which exist even in subtle forms like colorism have been fostered by the Indian society since pre-independence days, most acts of discrimination on the basis of race usually go unnoticed in India. Combined with casteism and xenophobia, racism in India has percolated through the therapeutic spaces. In this episode, we have a conversation with Professor Bebinas Thokchom, whose research interests entails in the areas of community mental health, impact of ethnic violence on the psychic well-being of innocent civilians, psychological functioning of the criminals, and judiciary. She has worked on the issues of domestic violence, sexual abuse, juvenile delinquency, and tried to find linkages with various psychosocial milieus. Ms. Bibinas currently is an assistant professor at School of Human Studies, Ambedkar University, Delhi. Stay tuned as we discuss the culturally relevant aspects of mental health service experiences that are salient to ethnic minority clients and their impact on the reception to the services. I welcome you, Professor. Thank you, Saranj, for having me. I'm actually very delighted to talk about the topic that you have mentioned. So my first question to you is about the work that you have been doing. Your research work revolves around the themes of law, ethnic conflict, and community mental health care. How has your life experiences informed your work as a researcher as well as an educator? This is a very interesting question. And I would, in every sense, I would say that my whole personal life has been involved here in the you know, kind of work that I am interested in doing. And I think that is pretty much true for all professionals experts that who are working in different fields. So I come from this background of political unrest most of the time. And I belong to the state of Manipur. Because of the political unrest in the state, there has been a lot of conflicts in terms of educational policies and interruptions, especially in the educational institutions with various values and ideas imposed from not just from the state, but also from the rebellion groups that is arising because of the state, like because of the perceived oppression from the state. So political violence has been very much a core part of my life so far, and also for, for various people who come from that part. So because of which, you know, these legal system where you know, politics, the legal system, judiciary, how criminal minds are created. You know, we tend to think of criminals as something which is incomprehensible or say which is beyond a normal life, normal ordinary life. But my own exploration has taught me to see things quite differently. So criminals, we talk about cultures, racism, race, violence, you know, many of these terms are social constructs in different contexts. So when we talk about intersectionality and the work and community work, and the term community is is very much, again, very, very significant and important part of my life because I belong to a small town 
where community is very important. The bonding you have with your community is very important. And hardly you will see individual families taking care of their own children in the kind of community that I come from. So it's the community sort of taking care of the children in the family. So it sort of enlarges the connection within the community itself. So it becomes a very important work. So whatever you're doing, any kind of welfare work that you're doing, or even when you're committing a crime or when you are going against the norm, how the community sees you becomes very, very important. So that's why my interest in community work, mental health, mostly is extended from. I mean, that is, I would say, how in both my real life experiences have been in the kind of work that I'm doing. And what about your work as an educator? Because I know that there are certain modules, certain themes that are usually tackled within the university spaces around the identities, around the themes that you have been working on. So how do you contribute to that effort as an educator? It has been quite a struggle to bring in, you know, especially when you're teaching in a mainstream space like Delhi. I've been living here for almost like 20, 21 years. So it has been a struggle to find your own space. And, you know, identity becomes very important. All the more when your identity is either seen as non-existent or always questioned of the existence. So I have made lots of efforts in making it more inclusive, at least in the kind of modules that I would teach. And I can't really, like, you know, at this stage of my profession, I am not thinking about bringing a whole change in the entire country or something like that. But at least in the small ways that I am capable of doing, I try to insert readings which are based on marginalized experiences in the country. And it is very enriching. And even though you're using the same readings every year you teach the same course, it does unfold a lot of complexities, nuances that tells you how to interact with students of majority who belongs to the mainstream community. So it has been quite a challenge, but also it is very educative. And I do try to do my part responsibly to at least sensitize the students to the marginalized experiences as much as I can. Thank you for sharing that. We have time and again witnessed that students from the northeastern region experience discrimination and bias when they come to spaces like Delhi University to study. You have been in Delhi since quite some time, Professor. So what has your experience been? What have been the experiences of the young students that you have interacted with in all these years? This question is, again, very, very personally and also professionally relevant. Lately, professionally relevant, it was more personally relevant when I was new in the city. And I do see myself changing a lot in my own perspective, in understanding racism or in understanding discrimination, inequalities, etc. So as you grow into a dominant culture, you also sort of learn to cope with various challenges and also learn a few more things that you would never have expected of you doing it. So if I have to vividly mention some of the experiences, I would say that the cultural shock that we often talk about is something which I think any newcomer from my side of the country, from the margins of the country, would experience it, you know, especially in the metro cities like Delhi. 
And then later, you also gradually get to understand how complex Delhi itself is, right? <laughs> so in the initial stages, you feel like you are completely excluded. You are not even recognized. You are discriminated. You are called names like, you know, Momo, Chinkies, etc., which are very common names. And even today, even after living in Delhi for 21 years, even today, there's always a possibility of any random person asking you, are you from Nepal <laughs> or are you from like, you know, China or Malaysia, etc. So it's been very common. And recently I was infected by COVID and I was in the hospital and I could not take care of myself. So I had to hire a home nurse care. And then there was, again, not necessarily talking about therapeutic situation, but we are also talking about a kind of close relationship where a person is coming to take care of you when you can't do things for yourself. So, you know, these complexities were played out again in ways you would think that this was already resolved, but it's still very much there. But this is more about speaking for myself. Now I am more in a mature and experienced position of looking at various possibilities of different interpretations that people may make from different angles, from my perspective, as well as the mainstream perspective. Okay, so that is not such a problem at the stage of my uh, the life that I'm living now. But for the young students who are coming to study in Delhi University or you know, any institutions in the bigger cities, it is very shocking. In the first place, it is mainly shocking because of the language barrier, not just the culture barrier. You know, language is very much a part of the culture. So when you don't know the dominant language which is spoken in that particular area, it develops a lot of communication gap. And we humans are able to live cooperatively uh, through communication by using languages, right? by using reasoning and languages. So when that, you know, the, the language barrier is creating some kind of gap, then it becomes all the more difficult for young students coming from the margins to cope with the gap in understanding. When I say communication, it also includes the kind of comments which are passed in a way. Passing comment is a way of communication, right? Maybe in a very negative way or sometimes can be quite positive. So the negative comments that are passed on in a way of communicating to the Nordistan students does have a lot of impact on it actually slows down the growth process for many students, I would say. See, I don't want to stress, this, this has become quite a boring thing for me. I mean, to be honest, to mention about why people call Nordic students or Nordic young people as Momo Chintis, etc. Now, these terms has become quite boring for me because it's kind of outfashion, I would say outpatient terms of racism in India, I would say. But still, it does affect newcomers, definitely, to a great extent. Yeah. And my next question was about how this affects the mental health of the persons from margins, because you have mentioned quite many times that how apathy meted out to the issues of political, geographical margins of the country can affect the mental health of persons so I was just wondering what exactly have you found out in your research and work with persons from the market? I, I haven't done a particular research on this area, but then I, I can speak from my own exploration out of curiosity and interest is that it does question a lot on the identity of the person. And identity becomes a central driving force for people to strive for something they want to do in their life, right? So when that identity is questioned, not even questioning, when that identity is 
non-recognize. So there's identity of the race that you belong to, identity of the culture that you belong to. So, you know, the culture, race, tradition, ethnicity, everything comes as a part of the identity development, right? I want to talk a little bit on how do we understand our culture and race here and how deeply it is internalized by everyone that belongs to different cultures, right? Since we are talking about the context of naughty students, I'm going to just give a general idea about culture and race. So culture is kind of a, a system of shared beliefs values, customs, behavior, and artifacts that the members of the society use to cope with the world that they live in and also cope with each other. And that is sort of transmitted from generation to generation, and it doesn't stay static. It is also a very dynamic process. And the values and the belief system which is taught, so which is taught by your culture and tradition is something so deeply internalized. And here I'm talking about the young students coming to Delhi, how they internalize their culture and how they find a culture shock when they experience here. I would say that this culture shock is sort of experienced more by the minority because they are few in the dominant culture. So it impacts them more. In relation to this, there are many things that I wanted to talk about culture and race, but I think I'm going to shorten it and then coming to how it impacts the mental health of people as a field of service or, or as a field of study is something which is very, I think, which is still new in India, but even more strange or in the margins of India. And then, like I said, it's a very community-oriented kind of a state. The need for mental health services, the need for mental health practices seems to be recognized at a very minimal level. It is starting to be recognized nowadays more. But it is recognized very minimal level. Why I'm saying this? Because there is always one or other member in the community who will listen to your stories, right? Who will listen to your narratives, who will give some kind of life advice. It's very much available in these more community-oriented spaces, which is very different from the city lives, lives in the metro cities where it is more nuclear family-oriented where it is for the individual who goes through things mostly alone in a very private space. But in more community-oriented spaces, there's more of a shared feeling. There's more of a shared experiences. So people share a lot with each other. The need for mental health services seems to be recognized much, much lesser. But with this, I'm not also trying to discriminate or, or trying to impose this idea that mental health services are not required. It is very much required, but these values are slowly rising, but it is still at a very minimal stage. Early last year, if you remember, a scholar from Manipur was attacked outside their home in North Delhi. Do you think that the pandemic has contributed to an increase in the number of racist attacks in India? And what do you think has been the impact of the same on the mental health of the students from the region? The pandemic itself is quite a crisis which has impacted everyone. But one specific feature, uh, this is entirely based on my observations of having dealt with a few cases of racist attacks as soon as the pandemic started. It sort of heightened initially when we started having lockdowns and there were very minimal grocery shops opening. So many of the young people who are living in rental houses 
in Delhi, they would go to grocery shops and they were not allowed to enter. And it's like you're cutting your foot line, right? So those few cases were there. It was heightened. I think it is a global crisis. And to my understanding, I don't know how far it is true because I haven't really like, you know, cross-examined my observations. But it is impacted from the news that we watched in the beginning of these pandemic, especially Donald Trump is talking about how this is called a Chinese virus. He actually used the term Chinese virus. And people who are from China or Chinese Americans or could be belonging to Asian countries, those are seen as carriers of these virus. So that bias, I think, was quite spread out. Because, you know, whether we like it or not, it does have a lot of impact. America has a lot of impact still to many people, especially people who don't want to think about what is happening around, but uh, would just go with the flow, right? So I think that impacted a lot. And since it is already announced as a Chinese virus, and especially Northeast people look very close to East Asian features, the cases of discrimination and racial attack increase, at least in the beginning, I would say, in my own experience. But it sort of reduced after a while. Nowadays, it has become quite normalized. The pandemic crisis has become quite normalized for everyone else. So the frustration, the anxiety level has also gone down, I think. So when you see someone belonging to a minority community, someone whom you see as not belonging to your community, those usually become the targets of those frustrations as well. So this is what I see. And about the kind of mental health issues which people from Northeast would experience during pandemic, I would say is mostly of fear of being attacked. Right. Usually the experience has been about not appreciating or not recognizing well the identity that you belong to. But then because of the pandemic, this was also played out in a very different and more violent manner. And I remember one of the girls who was around 21 or 23, like between 21 to 23, she was working in a corporate sector and she was living in the Gurgaon alone. Her friends are about a couple of blocks away from her. And she was visiting her couples and she was attacked when she was going to visit her friends. And she tried to answer back. So the idea of mainstream dominant culture about the minority culture is also about expectations to submit to the majority voices. Right. So when this girl tried to answer back to the ones who were attacking her, she was physically attacked, not just verbally her um, slurred. So that sort of escalated their anger and, you know, the subsequent violence. And then Siddhid spoke in length to me on phone and also in, in another platform where we were having this discussion about her experiences. And she would time and again say that uh, they were trying to dominate me. They didn't like the fact that I was capable of answering back to them. And this coming from 21 to 23 years old kid is a very strong statement. And I find her very, very assertive in her stance. But you're not supposed to be assertive in a mainstream dominant society. I'm giving this example to convey the sense of mistreatment the sense of racial hierarchy, 
which is deeply ingrained. Race is about hierarchy, not necessarily ethnicity is about hierarchy, but race is definitely always about some kind of hierarchy. We humans tend kind of construct different racial categories in order to be able to say that these group of people belongs to this, say, white race or Aryan Dravidan race or, say, black race or Mongoloid, right? So different kinds of race, racial categories are created to actually convey that we have a hierarchy and what sort of you know, social attributions that we should be making to people who belong to different races. So that hierarchy was played out, I think, a lot. It was more visible. Otherwise, like you have said in your introduction, racism is there, but it has remained in a very subtle way. With this subtlety, I'm not saying that it doesn't have an, have an impact. It, has, it doesn't have a lesser impact. It does have equal forceful impact as for more explicit form of racism. So yeah, this has been there. Yeah, yeah. and acts of racism are rooted in structures of caste, ethnicity, and historical marginalization. And you've mentioned before how they go unnoticed or even unacknowledged, especially in settings like Delhi. How do you think this impacts the experiences of victims of racist attacks in a therapeutic room, which is often occupied by a therapist who is belonging to the oppressive community? You have mentioned how hierarchies are created within the scope of race. So how do those hierarchies play a role in the therapy room? This is a question which is not very close to my personal experience because the kind of people that I would interact in Delhi is from the mainstream, right? It's from the dominant cultural society. So for me, it's quite the opposite of what you're asking. And also, I haven't really personally spoken to anyone from the Northeastern side or any marginalized society in the country to have shared about their therapeutic experiences. But in my imagination, as I was mentioning earlier also about the deep community bonding which people from the North share, this also sort of, I think, reduces their approach to therapist in one sense. But in generally, if you want me to speak on what sort of things that we should actually look out for or anticipate if we are to see people from you know, different cultural backgrounds, while we as mental health service providers belong to a completely different background. I can give a few points on that, but it's more of a hypothetical propositions rather than coming from experience or research because I haven't done any like, direct research around it. So my first point would be two people from different cultures coming together in a therapeutic room is about opening up a more vivid kind of space, kind of third space, which is shared and co-constructed by both these parties, right? You know, both the therapist and the client or the patient. So I think there may or may not be, but it depends on how open both of them are and how both sides are interested in each other in exploring each other. So therapist is sort of expected to be more open to different kinds of experiences, but how open that line would be is a question. This remains a question. We cannot have an answer, exact answer to it. And how long their mutual dialogue is going to reduce the cultural gap is also something which we cannot determine. It all depends on the process, right? 
But it's important to understand that there is a third space which is created, which needs to be co-created by both of these in order to come to an understanding. So both of them might even, you know, sometimes require to shape their own set of values, which is sort of a part of a training for the professional. But for the other one who is not trained in the field, it may take quite a long time and therapist has to be more prepared of it. The second point is, like I said, it's a dialogue. And in these dialogues, there can be multiple dissociations in the sense because of the cultural gap, because of, say, lack of knowledge about each other, especially speaking from therapist's point of view, lack of knowledge about the historical and cultural background of the person that they are seeing. It does create multiple dissociations which is, again, both shared by the therapist and the client. Say, for example, there may be long silences where the client is waiting for therapist to ask the right kind of question. The right kind, here it is going to be referred to what is right, what is morally or what is culturally, socially right for the client, which the therapist is required to explore you know, in the whole process. So it is a little complicated but it is not impossible to do it. So one has to develop as trainees or as aspiring professionals in this field, you need to develop these skills to be more open, to deal with dissociations and you know, silences, etc. So next, which I would say is on the readiness of some exotic values which may be presented by the client that we are seeing, right? What do I mean by exotic values, for example? And I'm going to give an extreme example here because with that, you know, it, it may become more facile. There is there's already a myth or there is already a stereotype about Nordic people eating dogs, right? Or say North Indian people worshipping cows. So, you know, these are exotic cultural values which are very alien to who belong to the other culture. So how do we come to an understanding? Even these two people, not necessarily that the one who's coming from Northeast as a client is going to be the one who eats dogs or the one who is sitting as a therapist is not necessarily the person who worships cows. But then there is these myths and you know stereotypes which is already internalized, sort of understood in a very superficial way. Those superficial coverings, biases needs to be first, I think, you know, dealt with in the therapeutic session before coming to it. Because, you know, it's all—it's very much about trust building, right? You know, when we talk about therapeutic rooms, the initial stage is always about building a trust so that the person can open up more and more. So in that trust building process, it's important to explore in advance some of the background knowledge about the clients who belong to a different race or culture from us and keeping these understandings in question rather than, you know, coming to a conclusion. I read something about the culture and now I know. But, you know, if that is the attitude, then it may also be wrong, right? So leave it as a, as a doubt or question, you know, for more exploration for you. Because we also understand that even though people belong to different cultures, there are different cultural, traditional beliefs deeply internalized by each of us. But there are also subjective meanings of each of these. So I think these are important, some of the important points which I like to highlight. 
yeah i think that's so that's a great advice for any mental health professional who might be working with people from uh cultures different from theirs right. uh, yeah in your experience do you think that the mainstream mental health community has ignored the needs of the persons from northeastern regions of india do you think that the mainstream mental health community has often times been biased in ways i have been in the field so i know the kind of training that which uh, people get in this field so i wouldn't say they are biased or they are uh, say they're ignoring but rather i would say it's more of a you know, lack of information there is a lack of materials in the training process itself lack of materials which would keep them more informed about the diversity in india so when there is a training in mainstream institution often the program list the program modules or what you learn the lessons say materials whatever you call it i think materials to be included does lack informations about different lived experiences in the margins of the country so that is something which i would like to say that it would be important now because these mental health services are growing you know in india it is also reaching out to different communities even though i talk about very strong community bondings in in those uh, societies but you also see lots of students coming from those strong bonding communities aspiring to be mental health professionals which means that there is definitely a need for the service right so yeah i don't want to call it bias or ignorance but rather it's more of lack of exploration or inclusion in see basically lack of knowledge in me you can include something when you know that you are missing out something but the thing is in the mainstream consciousness there is this lack of knowledge that they are missing out something and that attitude of having missed out the nuances of diversity i think that should come first before actually calling them ignorant or biased etc hmm i'm sure that you have in your years of experience worked with quite many mental health professionals mental health educators professors etc have you ever come across dominant ways of working that excludes persons from certain marginalized identities and how did you manage to go against the system about the same okay <laughs> again this is a very deeply personal question see i have come to a stage where i kind of you know try to see both perspectives my perspective as well as the mainstream perspective okay now i am in the middle point of both of the mainstream and the marginalized culture so for me it's a very different stance from the me who came to delhi for the first time so it has not much of not excluding but it is more of i think i'm i'm going to say the same thing i'm struggling to find the right words to use here it is not completely non exclusive okay it is inclusive in various ways but not quite understanding the cultural values not quite understanding the identities that people carry as they would like to be understood and that also creates another level of complications in the identity right so when you want to identify as somebody but you are sort of recognized as somebody else 
by getting based on the cues that you're getting from the other person's identity. Then, you know, it also becomes quite a struggle when such sort of perspectives are gazing at you. Then you feel compelled to prove your identity. And most of your efforts are kind of wasted in just proving your identity. So it does happen in the professional life. Not necessarily people don't like to include you because of the lack of knowledge that I I was talking about. It can only be understood when we come to more, see, amicable dialogue between people from different cultures. More and more dialogues would be required. And then we know that one way of reducing the cultural gap is to interact more and more. But what are the kind of platforms where people are allowed to interact is also another question. I do hope that certain spaces of interaction, of intermingling do come up in the near future. Mm. In the last decade, do you think that there has been a shift, positive or negative, in the mental health realm to affirm cultures or different races in therapeutic settings? I think definitely. Definitely there has been a positive change. Not necessarily in the therapeutic. You know, when you bring in the therapeutic setting, it puts me in the opposite position of the question that you're asking, right? We here, the topic here is basically talking about how minorities perceived, how the marginalized perceived them being seen by the therapist from the mainstream. But I am quite at the opposite position, right? But then also through my own interactions, I don't know about the exact therapeutic experience that you're talking about because it's quite opposite of, of my experience. But through my interactions with my colleagues and professionals in the professional groups, I do see a lot of changes. I do see much more openness in listening to each other, which was earlier not so much there, which was earlier, I would personally say that earlier it was more of your point of views are not getting along with everybody. So that is assumed as necessarily not good enough. But I do see a lot of changes in that. And for to bring in that changes, you also have to struggle a lot. You know, you have to, again, assert time and again, assert yourself to uh, stand firmly with your standpoint. And not everybody who comes from the marginalized societies of India does that. Only a few people keep pushing it themselves, pushing forward themselves. Then only it happens. It is still quite, quite a lot of struggle. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we move to our, you know, last question about envisioning a future which is equitable, especially with regard to mental health work. So, Professor, how do you think that the mental health work can be more equitable, especially in the geographical margins of the country? And how do you think that you can contribute? See, all my work so far in my life, my professional life has been my own little ways of contributing to bringing in more inclusive services, right? So first thing which comes to my mind when I hear this question is, you got to be open. You have to be. There has to be a part in the training to necessarily be sensitive to different places or necessarily be sensitive to different caste groups. When I say caste groups and races, I'm also trying to say the kind of complications that people go through because those complications are going to be brought out in the therapeutic relationship. Okay, so it does require from both sides, not just 
I mean, therapists alone cannot do it, right? So therapist does have the power of knowledge and skills that they have learned to initiate the process and to motivate the person enough to open up about their complexities. Yeah, but in the training process, I, I definitely feel that there should be necessarily like, you know, some aspect of these openness or sensitivity to um, race and caste groups needs to be included. And there can also be, <laughs> it's kind of an exciting idea. It would be interesting to also have specific trainings based on different field work at different field sites rather than just doing the trainings in the most available sites. So I would, I mean, if I am given a chance to take students for field training or field work, I would like to take them outside of Delhi into the most remote area and see how they react. So you also become more refined professional when you also learn to get out of your comfort zone. And then only when we are too comfortable, you know, as professionals, we already know about the mainstream, what is what these are already automated in our consciousness. But when we are faced with something which is different, which is out of our comfort zone in our own experiences, even as professionals, then we tend to shut ourselves up or we react in a very different way. So I think these reactions and, you know, shutting oneself up are important part of the training itself. So that should be sort of, you know, practice. There should be experience and process and practice in the kind of field work that you're doing. It's something which I think of. And most importantly, like I said, there should be specific modules on practicing how to challenge and break through our own, say, our own personal boundaries. I'm also saying this because I have heard professionals of my cohort earlier talking about how they strictly follow certain norms. They, they strictly follow, say, the ethical concerns or they strictly follow what is being taught to them. Like, say, suppose, for example, the therapist or the, say, analyst cannot open up a lot of personal experiences to the person. But for me, it all depends on the therapist. And if the therapist is comfortable sharing and also comfortable taking responsibility of the consequences of the sharing, then it is not quite a problem, I think. Okay, so that I see as another level of breaking through your own personal boundaries. And definitely we need more training materials which would teach the trainees in the professional to be more tolerant about the differences in diversities with mutual respect. Yeah. yeah, these are some of the areas which I think about and I also would like to work towards more effortfully. But yeah, having said this, I'm already trying, you know, in, in my own capacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also think that there's a huge need for diversifying the mental health community in India. And I, and I really, really hope that the training modules or the training institutes actually expand their influence and reach the margins of the country. Because, I mean, we need more therapists from the community itself, right? Right. I do. Right. Ha, therapies from the community and also physically visiting those sites, those communities, I think is very, very necessary. Everything cannot be written in the book. We can read a lot about you know, different communities. We can read a lot about theories written by like Western thinkers or great Indian thinkers. 
But uh, some of these cultural nuances you can't read in the books. So you have to experience somewhere. Definitely, definitely. So yeah, thank you. I really cherish the conversation that we had today. This is a great pleasure from my side also. Thank you so much for inviting me because this is one area which I'm very passionate about. And maybe I did not fine-tune ideas, but I'm just sharing the raw thoughts with you. No, I think every voice matters and I think it was a great conversation. If people in the mental health community are listening to this episode, they would be taking home a lot many important learnings. So I do hope that yes. Thank you.